You are listening to Geek Fest Rants on the IC Robots Radio Network. You have located Geek Fest Rants, the entertainment podcast for genre geeks like you. Shall we play a game? Covering the world of vintage and current film and television since 2010. Game over, man. Game over. Featuring in-depth conversations on sci-fi, horror, fantasy, comics, toys, and conventions. So say we all. So say we all. And now sit back, relax, and enjoy today's show. Challenge your imagination to come alive and to battle with the creatures of Dungeons and Dragons. Grapple against the forces of evil as a Marvel Comics superhero. Hunt adventure and glory as Indiana Jones. The all-new role-playing games of TSR and Dungeons and Dragons. Unleash the power of your imagination. Hi, everybody, and welcome once again to Geek Fest Rants. My name is Carlos Perone, and joining me today, I have Steve Folks, who is going to help me go over a couple of books, very genre-oriented books, that we are going to recommend for you guys, starting with Star Trek Shipyards, Starfleet Ships 2151 to 2293, then Dungeons & Dragons, Art & Arcana, a great new book if you're into D&D and the history of the game. That will be followed by Amazing, Fantastic, Incredible, a marvelous memoir by Stan Lee. This is a fantastic way of learning about the life of Stan Lee in a comic book manner. And we're going to be finishing it up with The Art of Ghost in the Shell. This is primarily about the making of the film, The Ghost in the Shell, and the art direction and the special effects and all the fantastic CGI and practical effects that went into making that visually striking film. Again, these are a couple of books that we were going to be recommending. Holidays are right around the corner. So let's begin with our books. Plato, Mirada, You must burn the books, Montag. The books have nothing to say. When I was your age, television was called books. You, Mr. Bemis, are a reader. A reader? A reader. A reader of books, magazines, periodicals, newspapers. All right, today we're going to talk about a couple of books that Steve and I uh, have gotten. And, you know, some of them are similar in terms of we, we've, uh, we actually own some of the same books that we have. But I'm going to start with Star Trek Shipyards. This is called Starfleet Ships 2151 to 2293. Now, this is an interesting book because it just happens that that's one of the first things that Steve and I, uh, through, I guess, Facebook, uh, some Facebook postings, we started chatting. And that's kind of how we, we kind of hooked up in terms of, you know, wanting to do uh, participate on the show together and that sort of thing. And Correct me if I'm wrong, but when you ordered this book, you ordered a different version because yours actually came with a ship, right? Yeah, yeah. The, the, the version I have, I actually got it from Barnes & Noble. The, there's two versions. There was just the book itself where you can get, it yes. was like shrink-wrapped. And then there was a, a box set of the book. And it had like it has one of the Eagle Moss little ships mm-hmm. on in it. And it comes packaged together. 
which was really cool. I couldn't pass it up because I never owned an Eagle Moss ship before. So, you know, two for one, really. Which ship did it come with? The Enterprise 1701, the classic 60s version. The original. Okay, yeah, okay, yeah. cool. Well, it's funny you mentioned Eagle Moss because the publisher, more or less, and the, you know, the writers of this book is Eagle Moss slash Hero Collector. And if you read, uh, you know, if you look at the writers, these are Eagle Moss people because Apparently, and I wasn't aware of this until recently, some of these Eagle Moss ships that you can buy, which are completely, you know, fantastic, how amazing the detail and, you know, uh, uh, on another episode, you guys will hear me gushing over a specific one that I have. Some of these actually come with booklets, like little magazine almost, you know, magazine sized books that give you the history of whatever ship that you happen to be buying. Not all of them, but some of them. I guess the, maybe the more expensive ones. And that's how they more or less compile this book, is from all the research that these people have been doing for years. Because if you ever go to the Eagle Moss website, it is just incredible the amount of ships that they have the license to. Uh, not only, I mean, they have many different properties. It's not just Star Trek. But Star Trek alone it is ridiculous. There are ships that I, I've never seen ever produced as, as a toy or as a model or some kind of statue or anything like that. I've never seen them, but they do fantastic work. So because of that, they have access to so many good photographs and people that have, for example, special effects people that can give them, you know, CGI designs and all that sort of thing. But for this book, you know, you're not looking at like blueprints. You're looking at a very artistic, nice looking renderings of the ships in action, more or less. Some of them look a little, you know, Photoshop-ish because they're coming from, I guess, screen grabs, uh, you know, that are based on modern CGI, you know, from shows or from uh, movies. But they also give you a little history of in-universe history of how these things are came about. Now, the intent of the book from reading just the little jacket is that I think what they want to do is eventually do like an entire series from what I understand. This is kind of like a volume in, in a hopefully long series. Do you get that feeling too? Oh, yeah. And in fact, funny that I think they actually have book two out, actually, even as we speak, um, because I, oh, cool. I, I, yeah, I think there is actually another another volume already out. And I, I, didn't, I didn't get a chance to pick it up and flip through it. But uh, I, I think it has something to do with more of the, um, the, the more of like the original style ships, but I, I could be wrong. Well, I, I think the way it works is this is like the older stuff. This is the this goes from the beginning. As a matter of fact, I mean, I'm not going to go through all the ships, but I'll go through some of the most memorable ones. They start off with the Botany Bay, which it's not a Starfleet ship, but because this is Starfleet ships, I guess that it's more of an Earth ship, a notable Earth ship. Very notable. <laughs> And it, yeah, big, very important in the history of the show and 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 in the history of the uh, of the story itself. And it goes all the way to the Enterprise B, the one from Generations. So that's the time frame that we're dealing with here. The other way that they kind of break it up chapter wise is that it's also about you know the history of warp drive, the fictional history, obviously. So they they talk about, for example, you go from the Botany Bay, then you go to the Phoenix, which if you remember from First Contact, that being the first warp one capable ship 
that led to the Vulcans, I guess, uh, realizing that the you know the Earth now is is warp ready, so that then then initiate first contact. So that's a very you know that's the Cochrane ship, you know the, the the very important in the history of Star Trek ship. Then they at one point they jump to the NX Alpha, which is not a very well-known ship but it is the ship that in enterprise which is again one of those shows i remember you mentioned that was one of the first ones you watched that you were really deep into that it's supposed to be archer's father who was again another pilot who was into the whole you know trying to advance warp speed that being the first warp two ship and then they talk about a whole bunch of cargo ships and stuff like that which again these are background things that we see in the show and that's a very important thing to remember about these books is that the philosophy that they seem to be taking is that they are only going to display and talk about ships that actually appear in the prime universe so in other words you're not going to see any of the jj abram related versions of any of these ships you're not going to see any ships that are talked about any ships that are just shown in pictures or designs or sculptures or anything like that that you might see in the background they're not touching any of that which is a little disappointing but i'm i'm hoping that maybe they're saving some of that for a completely separate book I mean, what do you 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 think they might touch on those at one point? Oh yeah, no, I think they, I think, I think, I think they would, you know, be shooting themselves in the foot if they didn't. It, yeah, and, and it was a little disappointing because actually one of the reasons why I initially grabbed this book was because I wanted um, a, sort of like a write up and you know look into the, the USS Franklin, <laughs> yeah, which is one of the JJ verse creations. Yeah, and I love that ship. So and and, and I have to buy the I you know I bought the book without even going to see if it was even in there so, so, when, so yeah so when i so when i got at home I'm, you know, I'm, I'm looking through it i'm reading i'm like oh man it's not they don't have anything from the jj verse but it's fine i mean they can they can then dedicate a whole nother book you know to everything in that universe because there's of actually yeah, there's actually a lot of ships in the in the jj verse that they could you know go into so right right and obviously i have a feeling with with this it's like anything else as long as people are buying they'll keep pumping these books out because i know that there's also you mentioned that there is a, a a sequel, if you will, to the current book that goes even further into the future. As a matter of fact, I believe it goes from twenty two ninety four, which is right where this book ends, to uh, and it's labeled to the future. So it doesn't even have an end date as how far they're going to go. So yeah, they they definitely have room to do just one book on JJ related ships, but they also have, I believe, in the same format. Isn't there like a Klingon book also, or or a alien species book that they're 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 gonna put out? Yeah, I think I think there's like like the Klingon fleet. I think, and it, it looks to be in the same design as this yeah, one. Yeah, the is. same style. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure. That, I'm not sure if that's out yet, but because I haven't seen it, but uh, I, I do remember. I, I was, after I got this book, I was looking up a few other you know connected material, and I did see something about like a Klingon version of it, and it's probably gonna it's probably gonna be in the same fair. It's probably gonna be you know breaking down the history and. Uh, and the you know the designs of the Klingon uh, fleet, which is supposed to be pretty cool to see. Right, right. But with the Klingons, you could do that because there is so much material, not only in the original show but the movies, the actual movies. You know, you have a motion picture. You got some Klingon action there. Star Trek Three, there's Klingon stuff. Star Trek Six, you got a lot of Klingon stuff. So, oh yeah, yeah definitely, they can yeah. definitely fill a book. And I believe, uh, let me see here. I'm looking at it right now. It's going to be released in May, so we have plenty of time <laughs> to prepare for this uh, for this particular book. And and yeah, you're right. It is exactly. It's all Klingon. It's exactly in the same style, and it is. It does seem to be able to hit 
all those major points. And remember also, all the TV shows, Next Gen and all these other shows, there were tons of Klingon ships too that they were, you know, that they showed us in all these different variations. So yeah, I can see that. Now, I don't know if they have enough material to do a Romulan version of the book, a Cardassian version of the book. You know, uh, I, I would love, I would love a Cardassian version. But what, what, what I would think they're going to do because you know, the aliens that you know don't get you know yeah. the limelight, they're probably going to combine them into one book, kind of like you know, like an like alien fleet book or something. Yeah, you know? because I, I, I can't really see them. I mean, unless they really expand upon it, but is it looks to me like they're trying to stick with just like like you said, the ships that are seen on the movie screen and the TV show. Right. So in that case, if they're sticking with that model, then they're probably going to need to combine a few different alien races like i would love a cardassian fleet book but we're probably going to end up combining a few of them yeah because you you definitely some of these you don't have enough and again this is one of those things where they got to hit the more popular things first because just like any collectible you know whether you're dealing with action figures or or whatever there's a certain point where they start to notice that the money's not trickling in as fast as it was before and that's where things start to slow down and eventually end so you know if you're holding off for the uh for the Kazon book good luck <laughs> that's i'm sure on the back burner somewhere because that's not that popular but anyway, going back to this particular book, let's see, the second part of the book then deals with a couple that we're more familiar with. You start now with ships that are capable of Warp 5 and beyond. So you have the Enterprise uh, NX-01 from the show, the, the, from Enterprise, that's the Archer ship. And, and it's really cool because they also give you a lot of the technical specs that make the ship different. For this particular one, which was a big deal for the show, because remember, this is where they're trying to give you the backstory to the original television show that is already pretty advanced technologically and with Enterprise, you, you you have to somehow show something that's not as advanced, but obviously definitely more advanced than us. So they do have sections talking about how the ship has the, what was it, the magnetic plating instead of shields? Is that what they what they used to have? Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> and I remember, I remember actually making note of that, that, that yeah, that you can tell they're trying to, you know, trying to, trying to retroactively, you know, <laughs> sort, of, sort of dumb it down to make it a little more, you know, clunky and not as technologically advanced. Right, pretty right. Funny. I remember they would say, charge the plates, charge the magnetic plates. And you're like, oh, whatever that means. I guess it's, how do you charge a plate? I guess it, you apply magnetism to them and it, all of a sudden they're strong than they used to be that can repel some kind of firepower whatever who cares it's all techno babble uh <laughs> now they, they also didn't have i don't think they had any tractor beams but they had like a harpoon that they could kind of harpoon another ship and reel it in oh that's right yeah so they, it, there was some like other that. weird stuff that that they had that was it was kind of okay i get it it's the beginning of the technology so you know you get what you can get you also have for example from Again, and I, once again, I am skipping a lot because there's a lot of ships they, they give you here. But you have the Zhenzon from Discovery because Discovery is a prime universe. Well, it's a prime universe. But now let me ask you something. Is the Mirror Mirror universe considered prime? I think, yeah, I think it's prime timeline, but it's not prime. <laughs> it's not prime universe. <laughs> yeah, that's a weird one. That's really strange. But they do have the Zhenzon. They have the Discovery again, you know, and... We talked about Discovery before. The technology, you have to go with it because you cannot get hung up on, well, this is a little too futuristic and it's not, a, you know, how do you go from here to Enterprise and how do you go from Enterprise 
the price of the, the you know to the original show you, you have to just accept the technology exactly and, you know. and, and you, i mean even just flipping this book if, if you really think about this stuff i mean this stuff is some of it is so you know fantastical i mean come on <laughs> if, if you're if you're going to believe you know it's about time travel and you know slingshotting around the sun to go back in time with whales you know <laughs> it, it, take it for what it's worth it's a it's a fun trip that's that's, that's how it i look is. at it, it definitely is now, another very iconic ship that we deal with here is the Reliant from Star Trek II. Very famous ship, which is, uh, let me see, this is considered the NCC-1864. That particular one from Star Trek II, even though this is an older ship, because, you know, the, in the chronological order that they deal with it, they hit the Reliant first before we get to the, even the original Enterprise, they do have the Reliant as, I guess, being an older ship out there. Then that is uh, also followed by the Enterprise from the television show, the 1701. Then they hit the Refit, which is the one that jumps to the motion picture, which looks completely different and, you know, more aerodynamic. And, and it talks about all the upgrades and how much bigger the ship becomes, you know, when this Refit takes place. Then we jump to the Excelsior from... Star Trek Three. Now, the reason the Excelsior is important, it's a a gigantic ship, more modern, kind of a joke in that movie because of the fact that Scotty is capable of disabling it so easily. Uh, That's the NCC 2000, but it becomes very important later. We'll see in in a second. Up next, Enterprise NCC 1701A, the reconstructed, the new version of the motion picture one that I guess jumps to what? Uh, Star Trek Six? Yes, six. Yeah, yeah. That one jumps to six because in three it's destroyed. In four we don't see it. In what what about about five? I forget. I you know what? I I dislike five so much. I don't even remember Uh, most of Star Trek five. What are they flying in five? Is it the maybe it is the uh, the A. They gotta fly something. Yeah, maybe it could. They be. gotta be flying something. It is. You know, it was an Enterprise. That's right. It was an Enterprise. So that's probably where that came from. Yeah. And this be, particular yeah. one ends with the Enterprise B. What's important about B is the 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 type of ship that the Excelsior is. Is that model? It's a little different. You know, it's a completely different looking kind of ship. And that's how, you know, the book ends this particular time period in. Do you have any love for the uh, for that particular Excelsior style ship? Not in the slightest. <laughs> uh, I mean, well, just to back up a bit, as we're going through this, I just I just want to make a note that if if you're looking to this book with us, the images that they have for each like, like the main image for each ship is just they're just gorgeous. Yeah. I mean, like they're really really well done. Even with that, that Excelsior design is just. It's horrible, <laughs> but um, I, I never, I never, I never really liked it at all. But just the book itself is just laid out, you know, perfectly. It has, it has these really, really great color, glossy, you know, photos and the, the history and everything with it, and like the little small side notes that they have in the, in the you know, in the, in the footers and columns. They even have uh, size chart yeah, comparisons. Yeah, so you can, that. You could see the ships next to each other to see how huge some of these yeah, are. Yeah, in the back, there's, um, in the last few pages, there's a size comparison chart, and they have, and it, it, it's funny, you look at Discovery, and you, you look at its side profile, 
and it's like completely flat. Like the, it's so yeah. weird looking. Like, like I mean, it's cool. I like it, but it's just, it's just such a it's like a you know, uh, streamlined ship. It's it's really really weird looking. Yeah, and as I mentioned earlier, and you you just did too again. The, the how good the pictures look. Not you know, don't think these are only screen grabs. There are some screen grabs, especially for the for the television shows, and even some. Uh, not screen grabs, but I guess photos from the films. But a lot of the, the the pictures that are used so you could see where everything is located, it looks like they were, and I think they did, they had access to the CGI files, the actual computer files, so that they could kind of do whatever they want with these ships and position them anywhere they want, you know, to be able to show them on the book. You know, you have all profiles. You have top, back, rear, sides, you know, that, that you're not really used to seeing this much detail on these things. And it's amazing the job they did. Yeah, really, because usually when we see these ships, you know, they're usually like screenshots of, you know, from someone's computer screen or something, you know, pretty, pretty yeah. low res. But these are really, really high quality. So Now, I have a question for you. And this is something that we're probably going to talk about again once we review the, the following book, whenever we get our hands on them. I've read somewhere that during the conceptual drawings for the motion picture, one of the things that Ralph McQuarrie, who also did some conceptual work for motion picture, just like he did for Star Wars, one of the things that he drew was a saucer separation on the Enterprise. But for whatever reason, they scrapped it. They were going to do it. They were thinking about it. And then the, the script kept changing. The story kept changing. And then later on, apparently during Star Trek Three, one of the ideas they had that Roddenberry was thinking is that instead of it completely destroying the Enterprise, you know, from top to bottom, blow it exactly completely, that he would be able to separate the saucer section and have the saucer section explode so that the rest of the ship could kind of live on and then reattach itself to a new saucer. But again, they completely blew the whole thing up anyway. Do you know if there's any canon to the idea or to the thought or to the suggestion that the saucer separation is something that was capable on other ships even though we never saw it before next generation yeah, that i don't know I, i'm not sure if that was if that was something conceived prior to next gen and, and that's i mean we never we definitely never yeah, saw yeah, it on yeah, the show yeah, yeah, no, no, in the movies yeah, that's yeah, for yeah, sure definitely not well um, yeah i'm not sure if that, if that was an early like an early design or idea he had yeah I, i'm not sure I don't know. Yeah, that's a, that's because a, I, I remember I keep hearing I keep hearing about that, and especially when Next Gen came out, and people were like, "Well, this is ridiculous. How how could you all of a sudden now out of the blue make a saucer separation? How come this didn't exist before?" And I remember people saying, "Well, if you think about it, maybe that's why. Maybe because it came from conceptual drawings, they were like, well, you know, if it was on a conceptual drawing, maybe they could do it in the past. They just never had a chance to do it.' As a matter of fact, another thing that I read was that when they build a model for, I think it was the motion picture that the uh, the saucer section had obviously not shown but it had the the outlines for landing gear in case the saucer section were to land on its own so that's really interesting yeah, stuff. Yeah, and, and that, and that it, I mean, it would make sense. I mean, even from just like a, a logical point of view, if you separate the saucer, you know, it's not always going to be destroyed. You have to have some way to land both, you know, to, 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 right. so, or, or else, you know, there'd be no point having a saucer section be able to fly away if you can't land it. So, 
But even, but if you think about it, even in Next Generation, granted the saucer crash lands into a planet. I don't remember them ever. Do you remember them deploying landing no. gear as they're coming no, down? In fact, it's, it's a crash yeah, landing. In fact, I think every separation. Be, I don't think there it has been. They're separating it, and it just lands on its landing gear. I, I, don't, I don't. No, think so. I don't think I've ever it, seen it, always, it happen. It always crashes I mean, into something. Yeah, I mean, most times for the television shows and even the movies, you never see any kind of landing gear except I remember. Voyager, I think, had an episode where they land Voyager on a, like, I think, like an ice planet or something, and it actually lands with landing gear. Because, I mean, you figure if you don't have landing gear, any of these ships are going to just topple over because you need to have something down there. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. I mean, you, you would think, right? But it, it just, I mean, if you look at most of the uh, Starfleet ships, they're designed in a way where it, it, it would be very awkward for some of them, especially when they have like more like um barrel shape yeah in the bottom i mean i can't imagine i mean and, and these ships are like you know destroyers really they're not i i don't think they're really designed to be used in atmosphere that much right yeah you're right. let alone landing granted with 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 abrams you know we got to see the, the enterprise go underwater yeah yeah <laughs> that's true so it's like wow that's interesting but yeah you figure where would you put conceivable logical landing gear you know, uh, there's just so much gear that you would need to to hide in there to 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 form some kind of triangle to keep the whole thing, you know, balanced. Which again, like you said, they are probably meant to be, you know, always in space. Yeah, but, I, I would but, I would put it in the same argument as having like a star destroyer. You know, <laughs> try 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 to land on a planet. It's just gonna hover yeah. there, most likely. <laughs> Yeah, that's what that's because that's what we've seen now. Now, tell me about uh, your first book. So the the book I have is a book based on probably one of my older hobbies that I got into to escape uh, real life, which is Dungeons and Dragons. They recently put out. Now, this is probably I believe it came out in September, and it's a hardcover book, really thick, really heavy. Yeah. Actually, it's like a textbook almost. Yeah, 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 really. And it was a lot heavier than I thought it was going to be. And it's a, uh, it's a it's a book called Art and Arcana, a visual history of Dungeons and Dragons. But just to kind of give you the, the 60 foot view, it's it's basically, you know, the RPG and you would play with a bunch of you know friends or people. And traditionally you would play in like um, face to face, you'd play in like, you know, the tabletop and you'd have uh, you'd have a character and it's, it's all fantasy inspired. So we're talking about, you know, elves, humans, dwarves, halflings, you know, orcs, ogres, stuff like that. And you would play your character, you would have a character, you know, it could be a dwarf, it could be, a, you know, a human or like a half elf or something. You get this character and you would get together with a bunch of friends and there would be some something called a game master or, or a dungeon master. And that person would sort of run through the game for you. And the, you yourself and the group of friends would sort of go on quests and adventures. And you basically live your life through this, you know, character that you create. This is obviously the, the best way to describe it for now. I, I, I've done a, a, I think I've done a segment about D&D uh, maybe about a year or two ago. But the best way to describe it for, for people that have never seen it before is uh, if you like the Lord of the Ring movies this is kind of like that kind of a world it's it's those kind of creatures and those kind of people you know inhabiting a world that you yourself have to create and like you said with the dungeon master that person is the conductor they're telling you how the story is and then you have to decide what to do and the consequences of every little decision that you or the other characters make 
has an effect on the story and how the dungeon master proceeds with whatever mission you're you know you're on yep and and you would play this game through using uh using dice and basically yeah basically you'd be rolling uh dice to kind of determine if you're successful in doing something or if you fail at it and uh and like you said it would be up to the dungeon master or game master to decide you know what your fate is basically uh you know for such outcomes so the so the book here starts out um basically giving you kind of like you know the backstory of you know about the game and the history of the game itself yeah yeah the history of the game itself and i mean though the whole book is basically the history i mean it starts out from you know the early 1970s really the, the gary gyrax years all that stuff yep yep and uh the ideas and how it came about and you know how it basically started out you know a few kids in their basement trying to play you know like with these little miniature models they had but unfortunately while war games existed at the time there was no real rules or anything for creating fantasy uh type war games so you would have like you you would have war games that would have to do with you know like like historical armies fighting yeah Um, yeah yeah, but there was nothing the the idea of having you know a game based upon you know knights and dragons and you know princesses and all that there, there, there was no concept of that there was no rules for it so they decided to you know kind of get together and sort of kind of hash out and draft a set of rules that that could cover you know what a dragon would would be like in combat and what a and you know what a knight would be like fighting a a goblin or something and so it's, it's it really spawned from there i mean the the initial game they wanted to put out was called chainmail and it was basically <laughs> yeah and it was a set of rules for using uh like little you know models and armies that were not historically based but more fantasy based wow yeah so and and and, and just to, I wish you would have the book in front in front of you because you can see some of the artwork here is just. You know, I've like seen these- a few pages of the book. I haven't really gone through it all the way, but I did notice off the bat that the what really surprised me is the writers of the book. Uh, one of them is Sam Witwer, which is an act. He's an actor, a Star Wars voice actor and, and a yeah. real actor. His brother and also Kyle Newman, which is the director of Fanboys. It's like wow, these people are at least to me, you know, they're known people. <laughs> yeah, I, I I knew Sam Whitwer. Once I saw once I saw the name on there, I was like, uh-huh. "Is it the same guy?" <laughs> it's the same guy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He's, I recognize his name from um from Star Wars Rebels, I think. <laughs> Oddly enough, but yeah, he was doing the uh, the voice for Darth Maul on the uh, animated shows. Yeah, I, mean, I think he reprised his role in Rebels. But, yeah. but um, so, so the book has a. And I, I have yet to see such a, a treasure trove of just, you know, old historical photos. I mean, they have pictures of, like, you know, postcards from Gary Gygax, like old, old hand-drawn maps that he used to sketch out. And, and, the, and the, greatest, the great thing about it is that, you know, these, these kids that he, he sort of, you know, wrangled into doing this, none of them were professionals or anything. These, right. these, these kids were, you know, they drew this stuff in, you know, like notebooks in, in high school, um, you know, and, and, you, and you can see some of the artwork is like, it literally looks like, you know, they, they had a piece of paper and a marker <laughs> and, and just sort of drew, you know, rough sketches. And so, like, they have a picture of like, you know, like, like a hippogriff, you know, of what they would think it would have looked like. And it's very very elementary well it's no, very, very obscure very... pictures but it's also classical like for example uh, actual manual covers and 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 uh, module covers you know the classic images that again depending on how old you are you know if you think of the book of you know the the dungeon master book or or the player handbook or the monster handbook those pictures are in there 
Oh yeah, they're in here and more. I mean, this book compiles so much artwork into you know into the amount of pages it does. I mean, it, it has you know the the magazine that came out years later called Dragon, wow. um, and, and it was a monthly magazine that um, that would come out and it would give players like um, like you know ideas for new characters. It would give you new rules, new um, new you know new settings that you can play in, um, new items because a, a, a lot of this. A lot of the popularity of the game has to do with, you know, finding new items, finding new weapons, finding gear. And basically, you know, like if you ever play the game like Diablo or World of Warcraft, things like that, this is where, you know, it basically spawned from. So <laughs> you, you, you can you can basically see, you know, every month, you know, it would have, you know, different things that you can collect and get and, you know, use in your game. And how old were you when, when you started playing and, and what kind of setting were you playing in? I was, oh, man, I... I, I believe I started in, I want to say seventh grade. So what is that? That's like around, around 14. Wow. Um, yeah. So, and what was, what was funny is to harken back to actually one of your previous shows about, about the fantasy mall you did. Oh, <laughs> as, yeah. I was, as I was, as I was listening to that, I was sort of smirking to myself because one of the things you mentioned was, uh, was Dungeons and Dragons, I believe. And, yeah, and, yeah. and, and here in uh, New Jersey, there is a, there's a mall that had um, a store literally called Wizards of the Coast who who, who right. have the rights. Yeah, they have the rights to Dungeons and Dragons. And, and they, so, they do uh, they do their own toys and everything, I think, don't they? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. They they have they have a few lines of uh miniature models. And and, and that was this that Wizards of the Coast store sort of blew my mind because I walked in there and they, they had, you know, miniatures and you know models and things and, and I was so you know wow at that age, you know, I, I was just you know so blown away by all this fancy stuff <laughs> you know being in seventh grade i hated school so that's how i really got into it i, I met up with a, a, a guy there and he sort of showed me the ropes of you know like what dungeon dragons is because i i was confused i had no idea about any of this stuff i, I had no idea <laughs> people sat down rolled dice and decided you know and made games about that it, it was so foreign to me well the the other thing is also depending on again depending on your age and what year you're talking about what when i started playing uh which was in high school 1986 maybe seven something like that that was also around the time where it was becoming very popular but there was also a stigma there was a negative stigma about oh, yes. like uh, uh devil worshiping and 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 satanic rituals and all kinds of weird stuff having to do because of some kid i think killed himself or something and and they blamed the game just like they used to blame music and they used to blame the video games and they used to blame whatever this is one of those things that had happened. So it always had this connotation, this, ooh, you want to try something different? Let's let's play D&D. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, definitely. And and even I, – I, so I, I got into it probably around the year 2000, I think. Um, wow. <laughs> yeah. So and that's how I, I – or maybe, maybe a little – maybe like 2001. But that's when I really started getting into it. And even then, it was still very – it still wasn't, you know, really. I mean, you you never really walked up to someone and said, you know, I'm playing Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> so, and and and, and, the, and the, this book here actually doesn't even shy away from that. It, it gives you a, still a decent history of, you know, what sort of, you know, brought all that, you know, 
to light. I, I, there, there, there's a, I forgot what page it is, so I'm trying to look through it now. But there's an image of a Dungeons & Dragons cover, and it has a, a, like a woman like tied up next to like this cauldron of fire and she she's she, she's what, what looks like she's she's naked and she's she, she's like you know looks like she's about to be like sacrificed and, and it's you, you can really tell that this game was not you know in the limelight or no. it, it, it was, was actually something... i don't know if you ever seen this uh, and i forget if i mentioned it last time i talked about D, but there was a movie uh, sometime in the 80s it might have been a direct a TV movie, like a movie special or something, starting Tom Hanks in one of his earliest roles. I don't know if the book mentions it. It, it might, for all we know, about a kid who kind of loses his mind and, and his friends start to kind of lose their minds and he's become so obsessed with Dungeons and Dragons that somebody dies or almost dies. A- and that movie was sort of based on the real case of this other kid who apparently killed himself or something. And it's kind of like a weird cult movie now because it's it has, it has Tom Hanks you know superstar (laughs) doing a horrible 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 movie that he probably wishes that had never been made you know before he got even the slightest bit famous and again it was just a movie that trashed and didn't understand the game at all yeah and that's and that's that's the thing that also hurt the game i think there's a lot of bad press around it and once it started it sort of snowballed really because uh it also came about in a time where you know in the late seventies, you know, bands like Led Zeppelin were were you know picking up popularity and and yeah, Black Sabbath, yeah, and all Black that Sabbath, kind of stuff. yeah, exactly. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, um, it, it wasn't exactly looked upon, you know, it's and, and Kiss as well, you know, the whole Knights and <laughs> Satan service. So everything about that, and they had like a lot of bad press around it. So it didn't really, it didn't really. It's nothing like it is now where, you know, you can you can talk about Dungeons and Dragons and, you know, it's sort of it's much more. I mean, hell, you can go to Barnes Noble and find uh, and find well, a yeah. whole shelf filled of Dungeons and Dragons. Um, well, the, uh, the, the reason why it's a little more acceptable now is obviously that, you know, time has passed. The game has evolved, you know, more modern, but it's still the basics of how to play it. But if you look at shows like Big Bang Theory or or even Stranger Things, all of a sudden they're playing these games and people are like, what is that? What is that all about? And that's like how people are kind of rediscovering it or discovering it for the first time now, I think thanks to a boost from those kind of things. Yeah, yeah, definitely. In fact, you mentioned Stranger Things. It's actually um, uh, in the beginning of the book. There's actually a mention of Stranger Things and how it sort of yeah. it sort of um, brought it to the limelight once again. And there's even some celebrity. Don't they have like on YouTube some channels that celebrities play it or something like that? Like big organized groups. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I've got I've got the name of the YouTube channel, but yeah, yeah, you're right. It, they have a bunch of like I would say like B list celebrities, but yeah, celebrities nonetheless. Yeah. Well, you have people like Will Wheaton and stuff like that. Again, a Big Bang Theory people. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, what's it called? Critical Role. Critical Role. Yeah, Critical Role. Yeah, and and that's you it. Critical and, and Role. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They like stream their sessions of them all playing together. And and also the TV show it was it came out now maybe like 15 years ago. Freaks and Geeks. They had a big. Oh yeah, yeah, they had, I forgot about yeah, that. Yeah, the characters there were D and D players. And if you remember, again around that time, uh, the movie ET. I don't know if you even remember that movie. There was a scene where all the kids are playing D and D before Elliot meets ET for the first yep. time. So, yep. now did you continue to play 
since the beginning you started playing or did you drop off at a certain point and restarted? How did that work for you? Uh, I, I had dropped off um, after, in fact, when, well, when I first got into it, I actually didn't even have a group to play with. I, I was really just re- buying the books and reading them for myself. Uh, I Because wow. none of my friends were really that into it where, you know, they would have wanted to actually, you know, sit down and commit to this thing. So, yeah, so for a, for the early years, I, I, I was buying the books and just reading them and, you know, writing my own. As geeky as it sounds, I, I would write my own fiction. Wow. But you know what it is? It's hard to find a dungeon master because everybody wants to play, but nobody wants to run. Yeah, you yeah. Know? You got to put the most work into it. So yeah, yeah. So for a while, I, I wasn't, I wasn't even playing. And then finally, I, um, I think when I got into high school, my music teacher actually he saw me reading Dungeons and Dragons, the player's manual. And so um, he, he never, he never like said he played, he never really like came out and said, you know, oh yeah, I used to play that back in my day. No, but he, he would always, he, he always knew a lot about it. So I just assumed that he, that he, that, that, that he actually, you know, played the game. And, and I definitely wasn't into, you know, like sports or anything at, at that time. So as I kept talking with him, he, he, as, as, I, as I kept talking with him, and, you know, and, and turning back and forth, he came out and asked me, I was like, you know, well, do you play? Do you have a group? So, so he said, he said he, him and more his, I guess his, I, I don't think there were, any of the, my fellow, any of his, any of the other teachers, but I, I guess I assumed he had a group of, you know, like older people around his age he played with. So I was like, okay, so that sort of inspired me to go and try to actually, you know, proactively find a group to play with. And I finally did. I finally found some, a group at like a, a local game store that I was able to um, kind of sit down and play. But I was never really there. We were never really, you know, that close so it was, it was more yeah. it was more of just me you know showing up there and and playing some but but eventually to make a long story short eventually i did find like a more dedicated group but it, it was online based so it, it was oh. yeah so and that's another aspect of where the game can can sort of go to where if you remember uh cast your mind back to aol you know america online <laughs> they would have you know these chat rooms where you can go into so you can create a chat room and you can you know roll dice through the chat and you can you can play like that, and so that's how I that's, wow. that's how I got actually the like the the meat of my Dungeons and Dragons playing. It was actually online. Wow, wow. Well, for me, again, I'm just going to quickly recap because I've I've done it already once before. But it was through high school, and it kind of ended. It was a very brief period, maybe about a year or two years, and then it completely ended completely. And I still had some of the books that originally I had, again, Monster Manual and all that kind of stuff, and didn't touch it. And again, uh, I would say around the time of Stranger Things, when, you know, my whole family, we were watching the show and enjoying it. And it's like, oh, I remember that. I used to play that. And, and people were here. They were like, my kids were like, well, what, what is that? <laughs> so I started explaining it to them. And I'm like, well, let me see if I can find the book. So... I was able to find a few books and then the rest I rebought through eBay and I purposely bought my the same old books from the 80s. I, I wanted to stay within the 80s, but then I had to buy some more current ones because it was just too jarring between the information of the, the current information of, of the characters and the older information. So I have now basically what I used to have when I was a teenager and I have a, a more modern version, not the most modern one. I think I forget what, what volume I'm, I have, but, uh, they, they did, you know, we did start playing for about a year on and off, you know, cause again, my kids, one's in college now, one's in high school, finishing high school, but my daughter, like I'm, uh, like I had mentioned earlier also, she, uh, formed her own groups 
with her friends and even some online people through Skype and other means were able to jump in every now and then too so that she's keeping up with it too so it's it's weird how this thing just seems to continue you know with your with your with my geek kids <laughs> <laughs> which is great i mean for such like a, a basic you know when you think about what dungeons and dragons is it's, it's a pretty basic concept and so it's so like primitive really when you consider you know against like video games and you know, virtual reality we have you know like <laughs> vr we have now but it's great that it, it, it still can you know it can still sort of you know capture the minds of you know younger kids um throughout all these years i was dming for them because i was the one who knew it the most but i was bringing out my my lord of the ring action figures <laughs> and some of my movie maniac scary creatures so i was using a lot of them as props in my in my setups and that sort of thing and <laughs> using maps and whiteboards to show you know this is where one room leads to another room and that kind of stuff so i like uh, i like lots of visual yeah aids. yeah and, and this game definitely <laughs> definitely lends itself to it which is funny because also the book also actually touches upon a lot of the uh the, like the the franchises and properties that spawned from Dungeons and Dragons um because it was wow. so influential you know so many other games like Warhammer came about you know on the heels of it and so many other games you know saw you know the popularity of what Dungeons and Dragons you know brought and you know like they have sword and sorcery and uh, all these other you know companies that tried to capture the same thing and were inspired basically well that was the thing i remember back then it was like the when will computers help us with this game because yes you can create so many things but because in the 80s you know it was the beginning of the computer age everybody kept thinking about there's got to be a way of having the computer run the game for you somehow you know these imaginary computers that are just around the corner <laughs> coming up yeah yeah and they sort of hit the nail on the head of that but uh, definitely uh i am definitely going to have this book pretty soon i'm pretty sure i assume you you recommend it's a big one it's a big big thick it's heavy a big book. thick heavy book but i mean it's just soup to nuts everything of dungeon dragons i mean it, it, even in the back it, it even talks about a lot of the computer games like forgotten realms and baldur's gate and you know how they how, how they were influenced by dungeons and dragons and the artwork again is just a huge collection of just full color you know prints of, of like it's also what's really neat is that there's a lot of the old advertisements for the game so you have you have, wow. you have in the beginning of it is very 80s looking kid you know he has like overalls on, you know, very, very like the fe the, fe the feathered hair, and it says, and it says, oh, wow. who needs to hang around? I've got Dungeons and Dragons, Dun Dungeons and Dragons mm. basic set, a fantasy role playing adventure game from TSR Hobbies, <laughs> the Game Wizards, and and this kid, this kid looks, you know, he's 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 like the beat up Converse on, and in the in the background is. I guess his family playing Dungeons and Dragons around the kitchen table. It's just stuff like that. It's, they have it. It's just filled with maps, you know, old drawings. The covers of some of the books are just fantastic. I mean, it's really, really, really recommended. No, it, it sounds like they did a really good job with that one. Let me tell you about my second book. It's weird because my second book is technically a comic. A graphic novel, a hardcover graphic novel, but it's an autobiography. It's about Stan Lee. Now, I've been hearing about Stan Lee for a while, and as, as you know, I'm not a big comic book person in terms of I did not grow up with comic books the way a lot of people have. My introduction, my main introduction into the Marvel Universe, if you will, is through the movies. And and this is one of the things I mentioned a couple times before, is that for me, watching the movies is great because I don't bring any expectations from 
the comic book world into the film. So to me, that's the first time I'm seeing most of these. Now, granted, you know, you have some major characters like Spider-Man that I know and have seen on animated shows or even some cheesy live action versions. Same thing with the Hulk. You know, there've been certain movies, animated television show. I remember, you know, again, I am aware of that, that particular background, but I've always known that, you know, Stan Lee was some kind of player in this and somebody that was very important to this particular franchise. But because again, I wasn't too familiar with the comic book side. I didn't know exactly why was it that everybody was so respectful and loving of Stanley, who recently passed away. You know, we, we've been seeing tributes and stories left and right all over the internet about it. And a friend of mine a while back, he basically explained that, yeah, he was a guy that was involved in the comics, but nowadays he's not that involved. But because he's around, they kind of revere him. You know, they still respect him and, and give him you know, the, the, the proper props, if you will, even though he's really not that active in terms of coming up with stuff. He's not that active. But with this memoir, if you will, it's really weird because it's kind of schizophrenic in a way. And it's it's written in his style. You know, if you watch any of the interviews, he's always on. He's always like on stage acting and talking very dramatically and that kind, you know, that kind of comic bookish kind of voice. The voice that I remember uh, from some of the animated shows that he would, uh, he would narrate some of the shows and we would get to listen to his voice. And like I said before, any interview, you know, in the past 20, 30 years, you know, he, he's always on, he's always doing this thing, the Stan Lee thing. But What's interesting, through the comic, it's him basically telling the story of his life. And uh, normally, you know, if this was a book, this would be probably about an inch thick and full of information, you know, chronological information. But in this style, this particular style of comic, it jumps back and forth between different periods of his life. His real name was Stanley Lieber. And I remember hearing an interview about him there saying, well, well, how did you get Stan Lee? And he's like, he's not entirely sure because Stan Lee could be Stanley. Stanley broken up in two names, Stanley, great. But it could also be Stan and Lee from Lieber. So he he apparently isn't even sure anymore which where did the name break into two pieces. His father was Romanian. He lived through the Great Depression and he talks a lot about, you know, how poor his family was living in a in a you know very poor area of the city. He uh, read everything. He was a devout reader. He would listen to the radio and, and listen to, again, back in the 30s, we're talking about, you know, no television yet. So it's all about listening and imagining all these stories. But he would read like all the classics left and right. At one point, he had an uncle who was in the publishing industry and he finally was able to get a job when he was old enough at a place called Timely Comics. And there, through one of his uncle's connections, he started working on the Captain America comic book. Around the time of the war, he enlisted and he was basically put on writing-related duties, such as writing for some of the Army instructional films and for like the advertising department of the Army and that kind of thing. And then when he returned from the Army, from the war, he jumped back into that same company and continued with comic books. He met his wife, which at the time was his girlfriend, around this time. And as he continued to work in comics, this was around the time when they instituted the comic book code. This is something that I was not too certain about how it worked. And it was basically a censorship 
a mechanism that they had because again we, it's funny we're talking about D&D and the devil worshipping and all that stuff there was this big thing about comic books being too violent and kids being influenced by comic books and and corrupting society so there was apparently a board that would either approve or disapprove by putting i guess a stamp on your comic to see if you were allowed to read it or not if they would if you give you permission you know to sell it and they kind of worked for a lot of the time that Marvel was uh, in its many incarnations, they had to work under this uh, comic book code. But little by little, they started challenging it with Stan, some of Stan Lee's work. And uh, apparently it was during one of the Spider-Man comics that he decided he wanted to deal with the issue of drug abuse. About a bad guy that is bad, you know, because of him being influenced by his drugs. I think it might have been the Green Goblin or something like that. But he got in trouble for it and and he couldn't convince them that, you know, he was doing an anti-drug message, but they didn't want him to even discuss the word drugs at all. So there was a big uh, hubbub about that. In the comic, we get to see, again, a lot of his personal life too. The fact that he, uh, with his wife, they had a daughter, then they had a second daughter who passed away. And that was a very traumatic, you know, period in his life. His company changed hands a number of times that became Atlas Comics at one point. He kept getting like promotions to do more stuff, like from being just a writer to an art director to a publisher to, you know, all kinds of uh, different promotions. And at one point, uh, because of the popularity of Justice League, I guess from on the DC side, they wanted him to come up with something different come up with something that would rival that. And at this point, he was even considering quitting altogether because he was getting kind of tired of the the comic book world. But when they gave him the option of, okay, instead of just working for existing characters that are already out there, we want you to create new characters for us. So that's when he had probably his biggest you know, explosion of creativity, which is also around the time when he he hooked up with Jack Kirby, another big, famous, super famous comic book um, artist. This is where you get the Hulk, Spider-Man, Thor, Ant-Man and the Wasp, Iron Man. Around this time, all of a sudden, uh, the company changes to the title Marvel. So we start to actually see the word Marvel showing up on these comics. Sergeant Fury and the Howling Commandos, uh, Sergeant Fury and S.H.I.E.L.D., Doctor Strange. Right around the 60s, again, because of the changing times, he wanted to introduce some newer characters that had to do with people that were being oppressed and excluded from society and that sort of theme which is again it's very 60s very social you know of the times and that's where he pitched something called the mutants which later they changed the name to the x-men instead he always seemed to want to do something different and and still in that world but different so he created something called the Soapbox page, which is at the end where people could chat, some of the writers, and even he could talk to, talk directly to the, the readers, if you will. And later he actually did a fan club, uh, which they, they kind of make fun of the fact that the fan club promised no prizes. So it was basically, you're a fan club member, you remember, that's it. They give you some paper or something, some certificate, but there was no real like uh, expensive items that would come with the fan club. He later published a magazine called F-O-O-M, which was Friends of Old Marble. Again, it's within the industry, but it's a little different. They talk about in this uh, book also how he got to meet a lot of different presidents because of his 
stardom, if you will, you know, his popularity with comics. Uh, his brother actually, at, at a certain point, worked for him, and at a certain point, worked for some of his competitors. So it's interesting that his brother also got into the uh, into the business. Marvel eventually gets bought out by a whole bunch of companies and exchanged a, a whole bunch of hands. Perfecy Films buys them. Cadence Industries buys them. Uh, at one point, he hires Roy Thomas, which is a pretty well-known name again in the 70s, I guess. And he brings in Conan, another property that Marvel was able to, uh, I guess, buy the rights of or lease the rights of. They also start around that time the Marvel comic super special editions with Kiss. Now, this is also... <laughs> The, the line that introduces the movie adaptations. This is based on a movie. I, I don't think I've ever seen this Kiss movie. I've heard about it. But what's interesting is that that's my closest connection to comic books, especially to Marvel, was that, yes, as soon as, like, for example, The Empire Strikes Back put out a Marvel version of the film, that's what I would buy. Indiana Jones and the Temple, I would buy that. Raiders of the Lost Ark, Return of the Jedi, you know, anything like that I would buy. So those were my connections. I never really got into the entire subline of all the Star Wars issues. You know, I would only buy the stuff that was associated directly with a film. And even like Bond films, I think I For Your Eyes Only was one of the ones I bought. You know, I bought all that kind of stuff. One of his, I guess, last big ones that he threw in there was The Punisher, uh, that he was able to come up with that. At one point, he, I guess this must have been sometime in the 70s, he is once again getting tired of the actual publishing side of, of Marvel. So he decides to move to L.A. and to pursue a television or possibly even film side of Marvel. So this is where he gets involved with all the animated shows. These are the shows that we can hear his voice narrating. Again, I'm more familiar with that, watching that in the 80s, you know, as repeats. The Hulk television show, there was actually a, um, a Captain America introduction. There was a Spider-Man show, which was pretty bad from what I heard and remember Thor and even Daredevil were introduced in, in, in a combination of these television kind of movie television shows completely tanked I think the Hulk was probably the most successful of all of them the one with Bill Bixby and Lou Ferrigno so the other thing that's happening is that around this time Marvel keeps getting bought out then a company called New World buys them out and and again keeps changing hands keep changing hands this is also around the time where the comic book market in general takes a nosedive. And people were just buying so many comics with the hopes of being able to resell them at a, at a ridiculously high price. They were buying so many multiple issues of uh, number one of this or number one of that. But not the really old stuff, but new number ones. And then they all got basically caught with their pants down and they had nowhere to go with these comics. So... As the comic book market in general starts to slightly collapse, to avoid bankruptcy, Marvel starts to lease out, more or less, some of their characters to outside entities. And that's when you start to get some pretty bad movies being made and that sort of thing. If you remember, the Fantastic Four had a movie that I did a show on it, as a matter of fact, uh, that would never made it. Uh, Roger Corman had the rights at one point that he never released it, but you can buy it at a convention, you know, bootleg copies. A lot of uh, of these properties are being handed left and right and, and no hits are coming. And Marvel is not making a dime, just the you know, leasing the rights and being able to to continue to stay afloat with their comic books. 
But around this time, uh, you have another company that buys them out called Toy Biz. Now, Toy Biz is an important company because, first of all, they're they're in a completely different business, if you will. They're they're more, I think, they're more toy manufacturers. But what's important is that of that company, you have two names: Aviard, who is a a very it's a pre uh, Kevin Fage kind of person, and Ike Perlmutter. I've heard really horrible things about Perlmutter from, yeah. from reading on the internet. Not only his current political things, but the way that he would treat a lot of the potentially or up-and-coming big stars, uh, movie stars having to do uh, with the MCU, you know, that now they're kind of gotten away from him completely. So... As Marvel is trying to reorganize itself and trying to re-get some of those rights back, that's when things start to turn around. Some of the even external places that they've been leasing their name to, for example, the Spider-Man uh, films, they start to get successful. Again, Marvel is not in control, but somebody else is doing them for them. The X-Men films, and we talked about this also, all of a sudden, they start to get some traction. These, these films are starting to make money. So Marvel is starting to realize that, listen, we have got to get something going now because, you know, the audience is changing. People are actually liking this stuff now out of, you know, out of the blue. Granted, you know, good films are being produced. And that's when everything kind of turns around and... Stan Lee becomes kind of like this, uh, like a lucky charm, like a historical lucky charm that, again, he's not directly involved in the making of these films anymore. He's not directly involved in the manufacturing of Marvel comics anymore. He's now doing his own comics, you know, things under his own name. I don't, I couldn't tell you how successful they are, but then the Marvel juggernaut starts to roll with Iron Man and... The rest is basically history. You know, you can jump to the other show that we did to, to see how everything completely changed. The MCU, the cinematic universe, I believe basically overtakes uh, the, the comic book world of, of Marvel. We know where it all came from, but that's kind of where this particular book takes you to. It takes you to the beginning of the crazy MCU that we have now. And at the time, again, this is a few years old, so it's not uh, very current. But you can kind of tell, even in this book, that at this point, he's not retired, but he's not very active either. You know, you can kind of say that things kind of ended for him creatively and actively, uh, I think, at the end of the television shows. Once those television shows ended and he couldn't get any good films done, you know, I guess under his own power that's kind of how it kind of ended for him but for some reason which maybe you can explain to me everybody still came back to stan lee and he you know he had these cameos he's had i believe he even has a couple more that he pre-filmed in case of his eventual death which happened but somehow i don't understand how he managed to stay relevant even though he wasn't being productive, you know, for all these years. Do you know anything about that? I can only give you my best guess. And I think it's because, you know, well, first of all, you have to even, you know, just look at his 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 outwardly appearance and his mannerisms. He comes off as, <laughs> as very, you know, your old grandfather who, you know, still alive, very whimsical. He, he's he, a showman. He was, he's like a Wrigley Brothers he, he, kind of yeah, character. You yeah, know? And, and I was first introduced, I had read comics prior, but... 
one of the first you know touchstones I had with Stan Lee it's, you know, himself was through the um the first Spider-Man video game, which he narrates. <laughs> you know, he narr- he narr- he narrates the actual scenes in the game itself. That's one of the things about him is that he he enjoyed the the connection, not just the written connection, but he enjoyed meeting fans and interacting with fans and talking to the audience, you know, which technically he was a writer at one point. So he, you know, most writers like to just write and they kind of step away from the, the, the actual contact with people, you know what I mean? Yeah. But he liked that connection. Yeah. He seemed to really embrace it. Yeah. And and so so I think that, I think that really helped, you know, kind of foster this idea that you know, you know, Stan Lee is you know kind of, kind of like the father of Marvel, and you know, to his credit, you know, he did you know sort of bring Marvel up from, from bootstraps. Yeah, but I think also the fact that again the, the cameos in the movies really, I think, also went a long way. Where once people started recognizing, you know, that oh, oh, it's that weird, wacky old guy that's always in every movie. Right. I think that also brought to the kind of like the foreground. But you figure a lot of people completely oblivious to Marvel would say. Who is this guy? Why does he keep showing up? <laughs> <laughs> well, what was, what was funny is that there was uh, almost about maybe a year ago or so. There was that, that I mean, it's completely false. It has no basis in reality. But there was that theory that Stan Lee's cameos were actually part of uh, the bigger story, connecting <laughs> all of the the Marvel movies. Where, where yeah, where, yeah, I remember him. <laughs> yeah, where, where they wanted to have Stan Lee be like some sort of like cosmic figure you know tying all the movies together and like by the end of by, by like the end of phase four or five it, it would have been revealed that stan lee's cameos actually meant something and they were gonna like have some sort of storyline tying together it completely you know false but oh my god funny to, to, to hear something like that now another thing that he mentions which is interesting is that he he says that he had a different style of writing and that is that he would come up with an idea and he would talk to his artist about the idea of what the story is going to be like People like Jack Kirby, for example. And then he would let them draw it out, but he would then flesh out the actual script and the actual rest of the story based on the art. So it wasn't that they were drawing word by word to his story that was pre-written. He just would give them the idea of what the story would be, and then he would flesh it out after he saw the art. So he would kind of fill in afterwards, and that, according to what I've been reading, it was different. It was a different way where the artists get more involved in the story, in the, not I want to say ownership, but in the development of the story being told. And he said that a lot of times because of that, it ended up with uh, relationships with artists kind of breaking apart because the artists never felt that they were giving enough credit for their story contributions, not just the art, but the story contributions. And that he says that that could be true, that sometimes that would happen, is that because of that style that he had of not completely taking 100% credit for the story by giving the artists more you know, room to play with story-wise, it would create later on some kind of a rift between him and the writers. Yeah, and, and that's another thing where I I, I I started finding out about this only recently, where like Dicko was also another um was another. Yeah, yeah uh, I remember that name. Yeah, yeah, and in the rift between those two was sort of you know the, I think they had a, a mutual respect for each other you know going toward the end, but I think that something like that was i guess created more of a, a, a rift between them i guess in terms of you know giving credit where credit's due and and yeah. who actually should be responsible for you know creating the personality i we know we know stanley created the idea of the character but throughout all the years of writing you know 
how much then should be put on the shoulders of Stan Lee or the other artists who he worked with. And I think that's, you know, the, the artists in a lot of cases, even now are, no one really remembers, you know, who you know, the colorist or the, you know, the, the letterer is, <laughs> it's, it's, you know, usually you get, you know, just the writer, you know, and maybe sometimes, you know, the artist, but um, yeah, but yeah, that definitely may have, I mean, it worked out because we have some of the most memorable stories based on that, philosophy and idea but it probably didn't win him too many friends in the industry no and a lot of these uh, situations i'm sure ended up in in court they ended up having to sue each other left and right for this or that reason but think about it i mean to again unless you're a complete a comic book nerd to the average person what is marvel oh that's uh stan lee right isn't that stan lee and the hulk and spider-man and it's you know his name is now part of the whole you know pantheon even though we really don't know what he did <laughs> but he is the creator of these characters like it or not and and again his personality was it was overwhelming how into the whole world that he was into and this was a perfect i mean at least for me it's a different way of of actually going through a, a form of a biography you know having you know if i read this in a book and i know there's a few unauthorized biographies uh, floating out there about him the fact that this was authorized by him it makes it a little more special because it's his point of view and it's very ironic or appropriate i guess that this is probably the best way to listen to his story because he's a comic book guy. So you might as well listen to his life story in comic book form. So I, I really recommend this. It's funny, this book, I think about a year ago, I had gone to a store near here called Ollie's. And Ollie's is kind of like a cheapy store, like a store that has items that are like surplus items, out of business store items, that kind of stuff. It's, it's a cheap place to buy stuff. And... They had a ton of these. For some reason, somebody got stuck with these, and they were probably maybe three or four bucks a piece. And at the time, I was like, uh, you know, I'm not a big Marvel guy, and yeah, it's kind of my Stan Lee, but you know what? I'm going to pass on it. And then after he died, I was like, oh, man, I wish I could. I'm going to go back to that store, see if they had them. They were all gone. They were <laughs> completely course. gone. And I'm like, damn it, I wanted to learn more about Stan Lee now that he's gone. So... I ended up going on eBay and I found one. I mean, it wasn't that bad. It was, I think it was maybe seven or eight bucks. And like I said, it's a great way of learning about a, a real person with all these bizarre, you know, personal and business and creative stories under one, you know, nifty little book. So why don't you tell me about your last book now? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the last book I have picked out is another, it is another art book and it's based on the anime ghost in the shell okay. uh yeah which which is a sort of cyberpunk slash i guess philosophical anime that came out uh i want to say back in 1995 was when the original film came out and this book though is all about the 2017 live action movie that that was released the scarlett johansson film right? exactly which it did not the original animation is probably one of the most groundbreaking of all the anime that has come out and usually there's three movies that are sort of you know held up to be sort of like the biggest anime you know <laughs> there's akira there's ghost in the shell and there's an anime called Ninja Scroll. And those were all three very groundbreaking in terms of animation and story. Ghost in the Shell really stood out for me because it had a very cyberpunk, futuristic style to it. 
and it's been adapted and so many sequels and spinoffs and tv shows have been put out to it it's, it's ridiculous like they have rebooted this thing and tried to you know recapture what the first one did you know to more or less you know different v- degrees of success you know there's like three movies there's, there's ghost in the shell there's ghost in the shell 2 innocence there's standalone complex which was a tv show then there's then there's ghost in the shell the new movie whatever that means mm-hmm. then there's ghost in the shell 2.0 ghost in the shell you know arise they've been redone it so many times but Jeez. this is the first time it's been adapted to real you know live action and the movie itself to me is gorgeous like i really love the way it looks it's it, it it has that traditional cyberpunk look to it and what i mean by that is you know usually it's it's always like nighttime there's you know there's like bright neon lights very and it's raining <laughs> yeah yeah very, yeah very and it, it's very reminiscent of blade runner well it yeah it definitely has that and it's funny because when i watched ghost in the shell the movie i did i did cover it a while back i remember this was one of um scarlett johansson's film and and and, and they were looking at her for a long time after avengers a couple of the Avenger films, you could tell Hollywood wanted to put her in some kind of lead role. And right before this movie, she had done a movie called Lucy, where all of a sudden she gets to be super action-oriented, sci-fi, and the lead. So it was kind of like, it, it, it was giving them permission in a way to say, you know what? She can handle it. We know she can do the action. We know she can do, you know, the sci-fi edge. But... She could also carry the movie all on her own. And that's, I think, what kind of led to this movie. And I remember watching this movie. I, you know, I was aware of the... I, I'm not sure entirely if I had seen the the the, uh, the animated film before or, or after. I wasn't sure. I'm not entirely sure. But I do remember that after seeing this film, I was like, I know there's a sequel to Blade Runner coming. They can do it. Because the type of special effects they had in this film, the art direction, the way things looked, I'm like, that's it. They have Blade Runner now. They have the sequel to Blade Runner because of this movie. Yeah, and, and, and unfortunately, this movie, it, it just didn't do well, though. I think there's a few different reasons behind it. But when I saw it, I was like, oh, this is exactly what... You, you, I had already heard that Blade Runner was coming out. And so I was like, oh, this, this, this is going to be, you know, kind of like the precursor to what we're going to see with, with Blade Runner. And I, and I had always been a fan of Ghost in the Shell. Like I'd always loved that, the first movie. Um, I thought it was like a perfect blend of action and philosophy that anime sometimes always tries to tread. Mm-hmm. But in the sequels to the movies and the spinoffs, it, it always teetered either. They tried to go too philosophical where it just became like them, you know, quoting random philosophical quotes and trying to, <laughs> trying to say, you know, it, it comes off so like one of the, the sequel itself, Innocence. It's the most pretentious sounding movie. You know, it sounds like a, a kid who took philosophy class, you know, in, in, in college and is trying to quote off, you know, what he read because they, they just quote philosophers and like spout it out and just completely turn. Yeah, but you got to also remember with Japanese films, especially with anime, it's a whole other world. I remember watching Akira, for example, and I am like fascinated by the film. But then at the end, it starts to take this weird turn, and it's a cultural thing. It's a it's something that we're not used to. Like you said, it's a very spiritual, very uh, philosophical, which is it's just a different 
style that doesn't really enter in too many Western films. You know, you have the heavy, heavy sci-fi, the action. Okay, we understand that language. You know, we, we get that. But then when you get inside people's head, it's a whole other flavor that we're not used to. Yeah, that's, that, that is true. And I'll, I'll definitely agree with that. The, the fact that a lot, a lot of the concepts, and especially if you, if you watch a lot of uh, anime, which I don't, but, you know, from what I've seen, it is a theme that plays, uh, you know, a lot through the the different shows where they go very heavy into the, the more introspective and philosophical notes, which which I like, I, I enjoy it, but it it, all, it often comes at a at, at the feeling like it's trying a bit too hard or is going a bit too far with it. Mm. But the first Ghost in the Shell was to me a, a perfect blend of it, and it's, so so to get back to the the live action movie, right before it came out, we had seen a lot of the trailers for it and. I was blown away by. It. I was like, "Oh, this is gonna be this is gonna be great." But the internet, being what it is, <laughs> had, had this you know really strong backlash. And I think this goes back to the fact that it, it's it's a a Japanese property that was being done by a more American Western company. And well, there was the whole whitewashing, yeah, issue. yeah, and that I think, and especially when you look at other properties that were complete failures, like the whole Dragon Ball Z fiasco and and there's, there's been a history of many japanese uh inspired themes and you know properties being taken and then given a sort of um you know white or westernized representative of that of that character and i think that angered a lot of people yeah and so you know you know why can't you give it to you know like a additional you know someone who is actually japanese it even happened with uh dr strange with the oh yes 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 uh what's her name uh talia talia swanson or or Swan, yeah, she was playing. Uh, well, again, I don't remember in the movie. She's a she's a female or a male. I'm not sure if, what she's playing, but the comic book character I think is a male. Yeah, it's a man. Yeah. And so, but and, and again, I think it it always I guess sort of rubs people the wrong way when they see something that, especially goes in the show where you know it's like the main character too. But wasn't there also some leaked footage of Scarlett Johansson? Her face was slightly altered to make her eyes a little more slanted. So they were like, wait a minute, you're not using an Asian actress, but you're trying to physically alter her face. And then they were saying, I think they were saying something like, no, no, this was just some test footage. It wasn't really supposed to be in the yeah, film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yep. think there was some of, some of that swirling yeah, yeah, around yeah. too. Yeah, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. There, um, and, I, and I'm going to say that that probably is true, where they probably were just trying to test things out to see how it would look. Because yeah. if you if you yeah. remember, there was um, a movie that came out a few years prior to this called Cloud Atlas. And, um, oh, yeah, and, and, that, and that movie, yeah, that movie used that same idea because the, yeah. whole, the, the, whole, the whole point of that movie was where everyone was supposed to be connected, and so right, so was, they all everybody looks like themselves. Yeah, exactly. and the Different actors are playing different characters. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, it was actually a really good movie, but there was a, a story thread in that movie where they were supposed to be um, from. Uh, it wasn't Japan. It, it, I think it was Korea. I think it was South Korea. And that they made the actors kind of have like these very um, more Eastern, you know, features to them. Yeah. And so that I don't think, you know, <laughs> sat well with too many people. And, and so, so when people saw that Scar Johansson was going to be playing, you know, uh, Major Kusanagi, who's the main character, they had this very vitriolic backlash saying, no, you know, she's, she's, she's white, you know, they're, they're whitewashing the entire movie. So I, I think that even going in even before the movie came out a lot of people had this sort of you know 
this isn't my ghost in the shell type uh, type uh, mentality. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I heard the characters again I, because I wasn't that familiar with it. The other characters I heard were pretty loyal to the the original ones. Yeah, yeah. The, the, it, it's just her. Yeah, like, like, like her, her, the outfit she works with is called Section Nine, and yeah. everyone there, like all the other characters, are spot on to what they would you know look like in the anime. They all seem. To me, you know, looking at them, <laughs> they all seem pretty exactly what they would would they be. It's just it's just her, it's just Scar Johansson that, uh, which I, I I guess they wanted to have, you know, I guess um you know I guess a, to make it more palatable for Western audiences to kind of like, have like the lead character be white. Well, their point of view is ticket sales. You know, I need a I need a star. I need an American star if I'm going to sell this in America. Yeah. That's the old way. That's the same argument everybody always uses: is that you got to have your lead. It has to be Tom Cruise. It has to be Schwarzenegger. You know, you need a a name, a, a bankable name, to sell it. Yeah, yeah. And the same thing happened actually with the movie, and also based on a comic book, uh, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Yeah, the, the main <laughs> the main character, Sean Connery's character, he's not in the in the comic book the way he is in the movie he's not like the the the, the leader of the bunch there you know but they, had, but they put him in there you know just so they can have like a sort of an easy in for other well sean connery always plays sean connery yeah so. yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yes yeah, so, so this book here it basically goes behind the, the concept artwork and some of the designs they have and it, it just looks phenomenal like, like i'm i'm probably one of the few people who actually really enjoy this movie thoroughly just from the design perspective, it really has a. Uh, even though it's been used many times, the unique design of the you know the blending the western with the eastern and having it that very like cyberpunk look to it really adds this colorful and very vibrant look to the whole movie. It's. It, it, I, I really wish it would have been kind of appreciated a little bit more. And speaking of which, though, uh, just found out recently. Uh, you know, perfect timing um, that, that mm-hmm. there is actually going to be a new Ghost in the Shell series debuting. I believe it's on it's on Netflix, correct? It's Netflix uh, and it's I believe it's animated. Also. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, so they're going back to the traditional anime, well, not traditional animation. I think it's still going to be more like, you know, like that CGI type. Yeah, yeah, mixed animation. And, they, and I believe they're also doing, I don't know if it's Netflix, but I also I heard they are they're announcing Cowboy Bebop. Also. Oh, yeah, I heard that as well. Yeah, that's right. So they're definitely dipping into anime again. And for a while now, I don't really follow anime that much or that deep. Um, so I could be wrong. But for me, it seemed like it was dropping off popularity. I mean, I could, I could be completely yeah, wrong. Right. But it seemed to me like the anime buzz that was, you know, around for, you know, maybe a while in the early 2000s, it doesn't seem like it's carrying well, uh, on. But I'll tell you what's what's a little different now, especially with Netflix. You have Voltron that people are watching that and Castlevania. I've been watching something called Castlevania, which is, I guess, based on a video game, but it's very anime looking. So I don't know. I guess maybe they're shying away from the anime live action, but they're kind of coming back to the traditional animated anime. I don't know. Yeah, that's that's a good point. Um, yeah, and I did hear actually good things about the Castlevania series. Yeah, that's based on uh, the video game. So, so, so yeah, and and the, and the new the new I guess it's going to be a a mini series. It, it looks like it's going to be called Ghost in the Shell Standalone Complex Twenty Forty Five, which is interesting because it's sort of shares the same name as Standalone Complex that was an, an original animated series. So, from years back so wow. this could be a continuation of that but sort of like a soft reboot i guess who knows we'll see but we just gave everybody four possible books 
You know, the holidays are right around the corner. You might have some gift cards in the mail, you know, in in your stockings and that sort of thing. So if you're looking to buy some books, you have four different options here. So in the future, we might give you a couple more book recommendations. And thanks for listening. Thanks a lot, guys. All right. I hope you guys enjoyed today's episode. We went over a couple of books that we feel are worth your time. You might want to maybe consider picking some of these up. These are great genre books. You know, it goes into so many directions of all of the particular genre tastes that we have. As we mentioned earlier, the holidays are coming up. You know, you might have some gift cards floating around, and this might be a good way of spending some of those Amazon gift cards that might maybe find their way to your stockings. In the future, we're going to cover some more books, but it is just amazing the great quality of printed material that is out there and available and a lot of these i mean granted you can buy them brand new or you can buy them online ebay sometimes has them way way cheaper than the original cover price so there's plenty of ways of getting these and many other books so on behalf of everybody here i'd like to thank steve for joining me on this special book review version of our show and thank you guys as usual for listening and we will see you here soon at GeekFest Rants. Bye-bye, everybody. This is Major. I'm on site. I'm going in. You are the first of your kind, but you're not invulnerable. Maybe next time you can design me better. Everyone around me, they feel connected to something. Connected to something I'm not. What are you? saved you and now you save others like to subscribe to our show, send us messages, or see video links to some of the topics we talked about today, please visit our homepage at geekfestrants.com or our YouTube channel, Facebook page, or iTunes at Geekfest Rants. I don't know what we're yelling about! Geekfest Rants is produced by Carlos Perone, copyright 2018. <laughs>
This broadcast is part of the IC Robots radio network. Visit icrobots.com for this and many other nerd slash nostalgia related podcasts. You won't be sorry for long. <laughs>